Welcome to Emotional Savvy, the Relationship Help Show. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. If you're ready to increase your confidence in conversations and conflict, deepen your self-awareness, expand your connectedness, and enrich your relationship with yourself and other humans you care about, and even those you wish you didn't, you're in the right place. Enjoy today's episode. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler, the Relationship Help Doctor. I'm so glad you're here. I'm always glad you're here because it shows how much you care about yourself, how much you're willing to invest in having the best life possible and to make the relationships that you want to have be happy and survive into everything they can be and also to know when they don't have the right ingredients and they can't be found. So today I want to talk to you about something that is so important and we hear it so frequently and that's the idea of intimacy. Now intimacy of course people associate that with sex and bedrooms but intimacy is so much more than that. You know when Susan Campbell wrote that intimacy is four little words into me see She was really telling us what it's all about, that we're willing to have that exchange with somebody to really let them see who we are. And that's how we become emotionally intimate. And I think that is a very, very important component of a relationship that lasts because sexual intimacy has nothing to do with who you are and what kind of relationship you're creating. Anybody can have sexual intimacy if that's what they choose. But when it's accompanied by emotional intimacy, that's what we all long for. And true intimacy is close, it's familiarity, it's ability to be vulnerable, it's to feel safe. And, you know, I I think a well-rounded expression of intimacy is to say that it's about mixing lives and mingling our souls and sharing our hearts. And so I just want to talk about that a little bit. You know, I've said before in another episode that in my book, Kaizen for Couples, and I don't know if you've all seen it, but it's right here. You can always find it at Amazon. In my book, Kaizen for Couples, I talk about how important it is to allow yourself and your partner to feel seen, heard, known, acknowledged, appreciated, and accepted. And we're longing for that. Every one of us is longing for that. Then, yes, some of us who have been badly hurt say, oh, no, 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 I don't want that. But we do. At our core, we do. We want at least one person in the world to know who we really are. And intimacy then becomes extremely important. There's a book called Soul's Craving, and it's written by Erwin Raphael McManus. And he said, our souls crave intimacy. And I think that's true. I think every part of us craves intimacy. We want connection. But as I've said in another part, another episode, there are five gifts we have to be able to give. You can go and find that one, the five relational gifts. What they are are honesty, safety, trust, respect, and reliability. And without those ingredients in a relationship, 
we won't have much. But the thing is, you can't give a gift you don't have. So you have to have those within yourself. You have to be honest with yourself and safe with yourself and respect yourself and trust yourself and be reliable to keep your promises to yourself. But you also need to know yourself well. And how can you know another human well if you don't take the time to know yourself well? I know you might say other people are more interesting than I am to myself, but we're not talking about the surface stuff. We're talking about the deep dive to emotional intimacy. Whereas I really need to know what I think, feel, need, and want at any time and about anything. And in order to do that, I have to spend some time with myself. One of the things that happens with intimacy is we think we have it just because we're close. And I've written a lot about that in uh, Kaizen for Couples because proximity, closeness to each other, is not the same thing as presence, being completely present to each other. And that's where intimacy starts, when we can be completely present to each other. You know, so many times I have clients who come to me and really what's happening is they thought they'd found their soulmate, but things had declined to a place where really, if I caught them early enough, they were now roommates. And if it went on much longer, they were probably going to become cellmates. And some of them, of course, have cellmates because I work with people all over the world through video conferencing. And I know it's common everywhere in the world. The same things are happening because of our inability to really establish true intimacy. So I just wanted to really bring that to our attention, to our focus today, because I think a tepid relationship, a cool relationship that really is sort of ships passing in the night, as the poet said, or where we pretend that we're interested in the other person, but we're not really, or maybe we're afraid to become emotionally intimate. Neither of us gets what we want in those circumstances and situations. That's not what we're longing for. But sometimes if we've been treated poorly when we were young, we think it's all we deserve. And that's just really a shame. Not shameful, but really a shame. Because you deserve love and respect just because you breathe and take up space. Do you believe that? I certainly do. Every single person de deserves love and respect because they take up space and draw breath. And if they show us that their behaviors do not want us to be close to them, fair enough. But begin with respect. And certainly accord that to yourself. You deserve love and respect. It's a basic right. And from it stems, as always, responsibilities. So let's come back to the topic for today, intimacy. You know, if you really want to create intimacy then you have to be willing to look at your part in it. To really see, do I know myself intimately? If someone asked me right this minute, what do I want? Would I be able to tell them? Or would I try to please them with an answer that I think they want to hear? We do that a lot. We learned that when we were kids. It's just not an easy thing. It's not simple. It's not straightforward to think about developing intimacy. You may have heard of the author Anne Wilson Shea. And she's written books like Escape from Intimacy and Women's Reality and things about codependency. And I like this quote that she said, 
as long as we're looking outside ourselves for intimacy, we will never have it and we'll never be able to share it. In order to be intimate with another person, we have to know who we are, what we feel, what we think, what our values are, what is important to us, and what we want. And if we don't know these things about ourselves, we can never share them with another person. So that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? If we don't know ourselves well, and we don't know what we're longing for, we can't give expression to our feelings, we've got some work to do. Because that will prevent us from being able to share our lives with someone else and become emotionally intimate, to be really known and acknowledged and appreciated by another human being. So very, very important for us. You see how important intimacy is? You might not have thought about it in those terms. But we need to know ourselves so well so that we can have the experience of knowing our partners so well and letting them know us because intimacy is a two-way street. Both of us have to be willing and safe to be vulnerable. Now, just a word about those difficult relationships with hijackals that I talk about so frequently. If you're in a relationship with a toxic person, you may have had this experience. You're longing for intimacy. You have a lovely moment with the person. You tell them something that makes you vulnerable. And you think, oh, this is what I've longed for. I've waited so much for this. And then three days later, out with friends, your hijackal partner outs your vulnerability and says right in front of everybody, oh, yeah, well, he or she even does this. And there you are, completely in a horrible space. A horrible space because the person that I thought was finally connecting with has now taken my vulnerability and turned it into a weapon and used it against me. So I completely understand if you have had difficulties with intimacy. And if you are in a relationship with a toxic person, you really need to understand that this is unhealthy for you and you need to get help. If you can get be helped as a couple, great. I often work with couples first. And if we can make some progress, super. But if we can't, sometimes you just have to cut your losses and move on. Because that longing that you have, it will never be met. So intimacy is such an important topic. I hope you will sit and think about it at great depth. That you will think about where have I been intimacy? Where have I withheld intimacy? And where has intimacy not been available to me from another person? And this isn't only our partners in life. This could be our parents. It could be somebody really close to us. It may be a friend that we would really like to know better. But we're not safe. So I hope you're safe with your partner. Because that is emotional savvy to know that you need to be safe with your partner. All of these things, everything that I talk about in emotional savvy is absolutely key to you having the best life possible. I really want that for you. I truly do. I am excited to bring you these things and to have you be thinking about them. Really spend some time with yourself and ask yourself, how am I doing with intimacy?
here with my guest, a guest I've been anticipating for quite a while because he's written a great book. And this is Rabbi Manus Friedman. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm delighted savvy, that you're here. Savvy. I yes. like that title. Yeah, let's be savvy about our emotions. We don't let them take off without us and we don't be ruled by them. So we need to be smart, good and smart. So let me tell people a little bit about you and your book. Um, you're the author of the new book, The Joy of Intimacy, A Soulful Guide to Love, Spirituality, and Marriage. And you've been counseling and teaching about relationships and marriage to audiences around the world for more than 40 years. That's quite a long time to be doing what you love because you wouldn't be doing it unless you loved it. What is it that allows you to say, this is what I want to do every day? I have no choice. It's the only thing I'm good at. <laughs> Unexpected answer. <laughs> I doubt that. <clears throat> Apparently you can write. You're good at that. All on the same subject. And there you go. Well, you know, people ask me, and I always say what, what floats my boat and flips my skirt is helping people in difficult relationships and with toxic people. So in the morning I get up and the only question is, what am I going to do today to help with that? So I have the feeling you may be that kind of person too, that this is what I do and this is why I do it. And it is, maybe it is what you know. I'm sure it's not the only thing you can do, but it's the thing you've decided to give your time and energy to. And that's exciting. I find it exciting, don't you? It's a blessing. If you can do that, it really is a gift. I think so. Because yeah. doing what you love to do, not everybody gets to do that. No. And the other question that comes to me frequently is, when are you going to retire? You work all the time. And you know, I'm going to ask you that question, but I'm going to tell you my answer in case it's somewhere near yours. I say, I am retired. And they always say, what do you mean? You work all the time. I say, retirement to me is the time of life when you get to do exactly what you want, and that's what I'm doing. So how about you in retirement? Pretty much the same thing. I'm still trying to figure out what I'll be when I grow up. <laughs> Yes. Well, as we're growing up, we found some very interesting things to do along the way, and maybe we'll figure it out. So you talk a lot about two things. The, the title of your book, The Joy of Marriage, tells me two huge things we have to talk about. The first one is joy itself. What is that? How do you know when there's joy? Well, let's get right to the heart of the issue. Uh, it's a tragedy when people who are married, happily married, successfully married, will confess that there are moments, not infrequent, that they feel completely alone in the world. Yes. That is not joy. In fact, that's even a health hazard. Because those who feel all alone in the world, their immune system kind of crashes and they become vulnerable to all sorts of things. So it literally is a health hazard to, uh, to have that feeling that I am all alone in the universe. Now, it used to happen when people didn't have 
a marriage or a relationship, or they were fighting, and and that's what marriage counseling used to be, you know, cease fire, make peace, stop hurting each other, and so on. Yes. But now to find out that even in the good marriages, there is still that feeling of I'm alone in the world. What's missing here? Yes, such a good question. And, you know, my answer to that would be partnership. Because so much of what you talk about, about intimacy, is about an enriched partnership. And I don't think there's a lonelier place in the world than a a marriage that is not filled with partnership and enriched by intimacy. And that you go into it with the expectation that there's going to be this wonderful togetherness and that dissipates and there you are feeling terribly lonely. Is that what you're talking about? Uh, Yeah, I'm trying to figure out in the book what exactly is intimacy and how did we lose it? Everybody wants it. Everybody cries when they don't have it. What, where did it go? What is it? Yeah. <laughs> we only know that it's missing. We don't know what it is. And such an important inquiry. Because if we don't know what something is, and we just talk about it as though it's some nebulous thing that you're supposed to want, we can't possibly approach it, can we? So I think part of what happened, you know, biblically, we are told to get married for one very simple purpose, and that is to become one flesh. See, man and woman were separated, Adam and Eve. They were separated from each other, and then they regain that oneness through marriage. But when you talk to people and say, you know, get married and you'll become one, it sounds a little heavenly, (laughs) otherworldly. Become one, Uh, fine, it sounds nice, but it's not practical. So let's be practical. What it really means is love each other, be good to each other. That's more practical. Mm -hmm. It's not working. No, unfortunately, it isn't. Because because marriage is not practical. (laughs) No. And I have clients all around the world, as I'm sure you do, and they're all experiencing the same thing. They're they're feeling isolated. They're feeling estranged. They're feeling strange. They're feeling lonely. They're feeling... And they do have partnership and love. It seems that that's not enough. Yes, and, and love is not enough. That's my position. I mean, I've written many books, as you have, and there are five things that must be there in addition to love, and I call them the relational gifts, and those are honesty, safety, trust, respect, and reliability. And if those things aren't there, you're not going to have intimacy. It's not going to work. So we've got a framework now for what you meant about joy. Tell us what you mean by intimacy. Okay. There's a magical, almost divine ability that we have to kind of get past our own surface tensions and merge with another human being. But really merge with the person, not with something about them. 
So, for example, if a husband says, I love everything about my wife, that's not good enough. You love everything about her. Do you love her? Well, what about her? <laughs> not about her. Is she necessary in your life? Well, yeah, she gives me companionship. She gives me advice. She gives me support. She, no, no, no. Those are things. Do you need her? So it really, I mean, here's the shocking thing. Get right to the, to the jugular. <laughs> if I would marry someone for their money, for their money, that's practical. The problem with that would be, I'm not really married to her. I'm married to the money. Mm-hmm. I love her for her money. I don't really love her at all. It's just the money. So if I say, I love you for your looks, I love you for your intelligence, I love you for your sense of humor, I love you for your good character, I'm loving everything except her. Mm-hmm. Now, the painful thing is this. If I say, I love you for your love, I'm looking for love. What I'm actually saying is, as with the money, I'm going to marry you for your money. You hear it loud and clear. I don't really want you. I just want the money. But unfortunately, you come with it. <laughs> so what I'm actually saying is, I, I accept you. I invite you into my life for your money. Now, is there some way that I could get the money without you? Because <laughs> that would be even better. Yeah, it's called death. Is there some way that I could get the love without you? Is there some way I could get the sex without you? That would be even better. But, no, you got to come along. Okay. (laughs) So when do we finally connect with each other? So here's the point. If I love everything about you and you love everything about me, That's really nice, but I'm still alone in the world and you're still alone in the world because we have not connected one to one. We are sharing a common interest. So we both love Pina Colada. Remember that song? (laughs) We both love Walks in the Rain, but we're still not connecting to each other. So we can appreciate each other, respect each other, admire each other, and we're still alone in the world because we haven't made that special connection that makes us one. Our grandparents, on the other hand, were the exact opposite. When they got married, maybe it's our great-grandparents, when they got married, they just wanted each other They wanted someone else in their lives because to be alone was not acceptable. So they found somebody and they merged. They became one. (laughs) But very often, they didn't like many things about each other. So they argued and they bickered and, and it was all safe because they had each other. We're doing the exact opposite. Mm. We love everything about each other because otherwise we wouldn't get married. 
So we love everything. We can't even think of what to argue about, but we're alone. We just don't connect. And that's the intimacy. Mm-hmm. Intimacy means me and you to the exclusion of all things about me and you. Beautifully said, you know, and for me, that's the difference between two me's and a we, right? So finding the we-ness in the relationship is a huge piece. So I think we come at this from some different places, but I think we're talking about something similar. And one of the things is the ability to accept ourselves and accept each other without the desire to change each other. And sometimes there's a lot of that going on that creates some pushing and pulling that really does make you feel alone. So what's the starting point for creating the intimacy that you talk about? Well, the first thing is to somehow transcend all these things about each other. There's got to come a point where I don't need more love. My mother loved me. Okay, she didn't love me. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not looking for love anymore. I'm not looking for support or for confirmation of my of my abilities and my lovability and I, I just don't need that stuff anymore. And in a sense that makes me perfect. Because I'm no longer looking for things. Right. That's when I can finally connect to someone. So if I didn't need anything, I would be much better able to connect with someone without things coming between us. I, so, yeah, I agree with you. I just want to add this. I think that's where we get the entry point of joy is when that can happen, right? Yeah. That, that is that clarity, that's that openness, that's that lack of expectation, that's that willingness to, as you say, grandparents merged. Um, but when we come with so much expectation, and wanting something from each other, and as you say, appreciating things about each other, there isn't that total presence. That isn't that being in the moment. So carry on. And I think that part of the the culprit here is love. Love has become a monster. Mm. It's it's become God. We worship love. You know, in the pop psychology, the solution to every problem is love. Yes. Love more. Love more. I love as much as I can. No, love more, and that'll solve every problem. It's not working. You know, I I wrote a controversial article last year, and so I'll just put the title out there, and it was "Beware the Dangerous Myth of Unconditional Love." And it was just important to me to shed some light on it, even though it was controversial, because we have this dichotomous way of saying, oh, we should just be this all-encompassing, unconditional love, and you can just spread it and spill it everywhere. And yet, there are people that, you know, it would be really good if the lava went around, even though they need it so much. And there is not really unconditional love in both directions as easily as it all sounds. And there certainly is an opportunity to be unconditionally loving. However, it's a choice a person can make and hopefully they're thoughtful about it 
and they recognize that they need to be discerning with it. And this other weaponization, because you and I have been in the same business, um, it gets weaponized, this unconditional love, um, in the fact that if one person says that they're working to be unconditionally loving and the partner is dysfunctional, then what they like to do is to weaponize their partner's desire to be unconditionally loving and then say and do whatever they want and then make their partners wrong for not being unconditionally loving, which when you get into the spiritual arena, there's too much of that going on. What do you think? We have deified love. We sacrifice to it. We die for it and we kill for it. And it's out of control like every <laughs> idol. It always disappoints. So the idea that love, that God is love, suggests that love is God. And it's not working. Now, we haven't really defined what love is, but let's, let's not go there. <laughs> unconditional love, as long as we're being controversial, unconditional love is not even a good idea. It's not too high an expectation. It's wrong-minded. It's not savvy. <laughs> unconditional love is a fixation. It's not love anymore. If I could truly love you unconditionally, it would no longer be an emotion. Mm -hmm. It would be a fixation. But the worst part of it is, if I were to tell my child, I love you unconditionally, he would resent me. Because what I'm telling him is that he no longer matters. Mm -hmm. I've already decided I'm going to love you and there's nothing you can do about it, <laughs> which means behave well, behave badly. It don't matter. I want to love you and that's what I'm going to do. And you don't count. And that actually inspires children to behave badly, badly enough to get you to admit that you don't always love them. So what should be unconditional is facts, never feelings. The fact is, I'm your, I'm your father, and I will always be your father. And that's unconditional. That's where the security comes. That's where the stability of the relationship is. Now, in this permanent relationship, <laughs> I will sometimes like you and I will sometimes hate you. <laughs> but I will always be your father unconditionally. How unconditionally? Even if I hate you. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's beautifully said. And I think there's going to be a lot of people perking their ears up and saying, I hadn't thought about it that way. And what I hear you describing is love comes with boundaries. Like if you love a child, there are things you don't let them do because you know, it's unwise. There are things that you've, you encourage them to do because you know that it's lovely and developmentally wise. And yet we have an increasing number. Now, the population of people that I work with are the partners, the exes, and the adult children of relentlessly difficult, toxic people. So these people have been rejected. You know, there are all kinds of things that have gone on, both with their partners and what's going on within them at the moment. And so boundaries are something that everybody's afraid to set. Because if I set a boundary, then maybe that person won't like me, let alone love me. 
And so we get into a very strange situation with the idea of unconditional love. I, I really like what you said, so go on. Actually, there is a selfish kind of love. In most cases, love is selfish. It's my feeling, a feeling I really enjoy. It gives me great pleasure to feel love and to be in love and so on. And it's, it could be greedy. It could be, it could be really selfish and, and, uh, and cruel even at times. So when I say to my child, I love you, I could be saying one of two things. I could be saying, you are lovable. Mm, yes. Or I could be saying, I choose to love you. If I say, I love you, and the child is a little uncomfortable with that, it's because it sounds like a condition. It sounds like, I'm in a good mood right now, I love you. If I was not in a good mood, I don't know what I would do with you. Right? So unconditional love certainly suggests I'm doing my thing. I'm choosing the emotion I prefer. It has nothing to do with you. What it should be saying is, I love you because you're so irresistibly lovable. But not when you behave like an animal. <laughs> so I suggest to people, if a husband says to his wife, I love you, what does the wife usually say? I love you too. I love you. See, and they're starting an argument. <laughs> <laughs> it is so cruel when a husband finally gets up the courage to say, I love you, it is so cruel of his wife to cut him off and say, okay, enough about you. Now I, <laughs> so all he gets to say is three words, enough from you. Now I love you. They're and both then what? so selfish. <laughs> <laughs> but then isn't that the beginning of a beautiful conversation if it continues? I don't know which way it's going to go. <laughs> I know, but so, well, it would be fun to find out. So it would, be, it would be so much more thoughtful if a husband says, I love you, he's talking about himself. Oh, I well, love Stay that. on the subject. Don't change, <laughs> don't change the subject. He's talking about himself. Talk about him. Yes, I say love that. Like, say something like, wow, you really have good taste in women. <laughs> I'm here with Rabbi Manif Friedman, and we are having such a great conversation. I want to tell you where to get in touch with him, thejoyofintimacy.com. Um, there's just so much more to talk about, and we're going to be right back to continue this conversation. So I'm here with my guest, Rabbi Manis Friedman, the author of this wonderful book called The Joy of Intimacy. You can find him at thejoyofintimacy.com. And we were just talking about this idea that a man says to his wife, I love you. And she interrupts him and speaks about herself by saying, I love you back. So what is the invitation we should give to this man without responding with, I love you too? So saying, I love you, is not the nicest sentence in the English language. What would be better? I don't know, not, not practically, but what would be preferable is you I love. There's something about you that I love. 
It's not about me. So any sentence that starts with I is a little suspect. Any sentence that starts with you is much better. So you, oh, you I love. Not that I'm looking for love, but there's something about you. See, here's, here's another thing. If you're getting married, you don't need love from your spouse. A mother has children. She does not need love from her children unless she's really severely handicapped or something emotionally. Uh, you need love from a child? You're in trouble. <laughs> you don't need love. A man does not need love from his wife. He needs his wife's love. Yes, very particular. In, uh, very different. Mm -hmm. Very different. Yes. You can't get her love from anybody else. Whereas um, if you're looking for love, you'll get it from wherever you can. It's a beautiful distinction. I, I really like it. I'm going to think about that a lot. You know, uh, for, for several years, I was principal of a school for at-risk teenagers. And I really noticed the phenomenon that you're speaking about because they would get pregnant. And invariably, the girl would say, well, at least someone will love me. And she had an expectation that this baby was going to be finally the person who loved her. And there would be no question about that love. And as I would follow these girls along, and the young men who happened to have impregnated them, um, <clears throat> and then they would, the children would begin to be two years old, and they would learn that infamous word, no. And all of a sudden, the, the young girl felt rejected by this very creature that she was absolutely sure would love her. And, you know, I think that applies to all of us in all relationships. What do you think? Absolutely. If we marry for love, then you are married to the love. And the proof is, if the love goes away, there is nothing left to the relationship. All of a sudden, you look at your, other, at your spouse and say, what are you doing in my world? What are you doing in my house? Who invited you? Yeah. I just wanted the love. And the same is true with sex. The two things that are destroying marriages, surprisingly, shockingly, two things that are des destroying marriages today is sex and love. <laughs> and yet most people will say, sex and love, that is marriage. <laughs> what else is there to a marriage mm -hmm. they're, they're so they're so uh, separating rather than bonding you're never so yourself you're never so alone as when you're experiencing pleasure so for example a couple have been intimate and afterwards they'll ask each other how was it? How was it? Now, it was us. We were together. It was just us, you and me. Who's the it? What's an it? How was it? There, there was no it. There was just me. Am I an it? And also, you have to ask, weren't you there? <laughs> Obviously not. You have no idea how it was because you have your it 
I had my it, and now we're going to compare notes. No wonder I feel alone in the world. Sure. And the real question is, was I enough? Was I good enough? Was it all right? Did I do well enough? How's my scorecard? Did I make you happy? Did I fulfill you? Did I satisfy you? Am I good at it? Yes. Yes, exactly. And it's so interesting, these distinctions that you've made. I love it. We're going to have to talk again because there's so much to talk about. But, you know, when, when we want to enrich intimacy, because we only have so much time, what are some steps to enriching our intimacy, to building that intimacy, to make it so it can be joyful? Well, very, very practically. Intimacy in the bedroom. If you want to make it real, Make it what it should be, not make more of it, which is pornography, by the way. You know, if there's an it that's objectifying, that's pornography. Intimacy, if you want real intimacy, turn the lights off. No lights. You should be completely dark so that you see nothing. If you see nothing, there will be no it. There will be just us. That simple little thing, just turn the lights off. And if you think about it, at least those of us who are old enough to remember, (laughs) all those beautiful television shows like I Love Lucy, The Honeymooners, all those shows, when the couple were about to be intimate, what was the last thing they did? Turn the lights out. Turn the lamp off. That was the norm. Everyone understood this. It's natural. It's instinctively correct. How did that change? Why did it change? Because of pornography. Mm. Pornography introduced the idea of intimacy with the lights on. Because pornography is about things, and you can't see things if the lights are off. (laughs) When I mention this to people, their reaction is, Wow, I can, wow, yeah, just us. It's so powerful. It is, you know, and I'm, I'm just so taken with some of the ways that you found to express this and, and what it is that you can. So I, I, I'm looking forward to reading the book. I hope you'll send me a copy. But the book is called The Joy of Intimacy. And if you're as fascinated as I am with this, you're going to want to rush right over there and get one of these um, because I have questions. I have more questions now than I had before we began to speak. It is so good. It is. It's wonderful. Um, So let's just talk for another one minute, which is what we have, about developing intimacy. We got the lights off, so now we're just us. That's all there is. There is no visual stimulation or how it's supposed to be or anybody trying to impress anybody else. We have this opportunity to be, to completely be together. How can I make that a better experience? Well, the pleasure of that, the pleasure of just being with each other, of having each other, is a very real and powerful pleasure. It's not like, well, you know, if we can't see and we can't do it, then there's no pleasure. No, no, no. There's much greater pleasure in having each other because shedding 
our surface tension is so freeing. If I could just stop being me for a minute and let you enter my, my world or my, my universe, the pleasure is the greatest of all pleasures. And it doesn't separate us because I'm not taking pleasure from you. You are my pleasure. So we are truly bonding and we are truly becoming one. I love the way you're parsing out the language, the language that we have come to use to express some of these ideas and really making us think about that. So thank you so much. You've been an intriguing guest. I can hardly wait to think about it, read the book, and have you back on and talk about these things and in even more depth and breadth. So I've been talking with Rabbi Manus Friedman, and he's, his book is The Joy of Intimacy at thejoyofintimacy.com. So delighted you were with me. Thank you. Let's do it again because I... It really is life-changing and life-saving. Oh, I agree with <laughs> so you. Here, here's my commercial. <laughs> friends don't let friends get married without this book. <laughs> <laughs> well, you heard it here. Friends don't let friends get married without Rabbi Manus Freeman's book. Get it at thejoyofintimacy.com. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. You can know you can get all my books at, at Amazon and particularly Kaizen for couples so that you can learn how to have equality, reciprocity, and mutuality in your relationship. And visit forrelationshiphelp.com and join in. Subscribe to my tips for relationships. And we'll be back with Rabbi Manus Friedman. Obviously, we've got much more to talk about. Talk soon. It was a pleasure. The pleasure was all mine. <laughs> Thanks for being here for today's episode of Emotional Savvy. If you want to deepen your emotional savvy, make shifts in your relationships, and enjoy life and relationships more, work with me, Dr. Roberta Shaler. Get my books, enjoy my courses, or work with me directly. You can do that by visiting forrelationshiphelp.com, F-O-R, relationship, H-E-L-P.com, and subscribe to Tips for Relationships now. Don't miss a thing. Be empowered this week with more emotional savvy.